growth, economic potential, opportunity, people immigrating in, you know, it's going to become a, you know, a very global region. Um, and is Canada ready for that? <sighs> no. Welcome to another episode of the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham. And today, this podcast is about the North. We the North. That should be more than a slogan for the Toronto Raptors, one of our favorite national teams and yet again, another competitive team in the NBA. But Canada is known as the Great White North the true North, strong and free. It is in our DNA, but is Canada doing enough to assert and represent our sovereignty, to have a plan to achieve our ambitions in our North, which is in a period of change, with climate change, with melting of some of the permafrost, with more tourism, believe it or not, in the Northwest Passage. Our Arctic is changing. And is the country changing enough with it? Are we responding to global geopolitical shifts that have many countries, even ones that don't border the North Pole and the Arctic region, showing interest in the Arctic? This is a topic that has fascinated me since I came to Parliament Hill from my Air Force background, visiting the North on a Hercules plane many years ago. And that's what we're going to talk today. We're very fortunate to be joined by one of Canada's leading experts, thought leaders on the Arctic, Dr. Jessica Shadian. Welcome to the Blue Skies podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I'm very happy to have you here. And I first got to see your uh, policy insights and your thought leadership for the Arctic when we had years ago, you appear as one of the expert witnesses on a committee the Foreign Affairs Committee study on the Arctic and our sovereignty, a study that I helped initiate. You run a center called Arctic 360. You're the president CEO, but you're from San Diego, one of the most temperate, average temperature spots in North America. What brought a San Diegan, if, if that's the right term, to becoming an Arctic expert living in Toronto? Yes. Well, I traveled a lot of places from San Diego uh, to Toronto uh, via the north uh, to get here. But yeah, I, I did grow up in San Diego, so in flip-flops. Um, and um, I think my Arctic, uh, the initial love for the Arctic came during my master's and my PhD program, actually more towards my PhD program. Um, and the time period in which I was doing my graduate studies, I think, um, was a really exciting time in, in the world. And when I had begun my PhD, the first year we had September 11th, um, and it was also the time frame in which the, um, the euro was becoming um, a currency within the European Union. And so a lot of what we were studying as international relations scholars was on um, shifting powers of authority um, and how we uh, are learning to see 
centers of authority that are coming above, below the state, et cetera, as we saw with um, Al-Qaeda in the Twin Towers, what we saw with the consolidation of, of a currency throughout Europe. Um, and so everyone was looking to write about these big kind of ticket items um, and issues. And I happened to stumble across um, this organization called the Inuit Circumpolar Council. And I was extremely fascinated by the fact that there was um, an indigenous um, entity which identified itself as a, as a nation of people that lived across four different you know, state borders, um, had no intention really of trying to become their own state. Um, but have just managed so um, um, eloquently and uh, significantly um, to embed themselves within the uh, international institutions that we have. They're extremely politically savvy, and um, I was particularly taken with its founder, Evan Hobson. I think I've read all of his speeches. Um, and so uh, I, I, that's where it all began, and I ended up then having an opportunity to work with a scholar international relations also focused on the Arctic. And so I woke up one morning, um, luckily I didn't take my flip-flops with me in Rovianemi, Finland, um, where Finland calls the home of Santa Claus um, with like 10 feet of snow outside. And I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> I'm not in San Diego anymore. Yeah. And so from there I stayed, I stayed in Europe. I wrote most of my dissertation at the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge. And so that led me to meet a lot of people. So from there I had a postdoc and then um, like a, a formal position, uh, uh, both in Northern Norway. And so even though I had completed my dissertation, I was writing my, uh, turning that into a book. And so I was writing about the North American Arctic uh, and Inuit governance and sovereignty issues and the realities of, you know, historically and both today there while also living in the Nordic Arctic. And, um, you know, being immersed in Nordic Arctic politics and it's, it was in that moment of between doing the research and my writing on the North American Arctic and living in the Nordic Arctic that you really start to see um, the disparities in which uh, the two regions understand themselves as Arctic nations and what kind of Arctic states they are and what, how, what and how they perceive their own North essentially. And so when you can be in a taxi and go under tunnels and over bridges across fjords and no matter where you are, you have, you know, amazing, you know, internet, uh, talk on your phone, uh, infrastructure that's, you know, 21st century, uh, anywhere throughout the north, you have reindeer herders talking about their, even their dogs have phones and GPS systems on them. Um, for hurting the reindeer, you, you start to see a very different picture um, because here at home or here in Canada, we tend to see it's, it's we romanticize the North as this faraway uh, distant place. Um, and how I ended up in Toronto, I, it was my personal side of my life. I, um, I, uh, my first son was born, my husband's French. I, it was a long commute between Norway and France and he happened to have an opportunity to come to Canada for uh, a new tech job. And so we both thought this is perfect because I'd love to be able to live in Canada and do my Arctic work. Um, and then I ended up in Toronto and quickly realized 
we are lacking a few things here in Canada, and one of them is an Arctic think tank. Um, you can go pretty much to any Arctic country, and there's uh, one or several, many Arctic think tanks. Some are just academic, some are all policy driven. Um, um, and you know, here we, we don't have that, so we're missing the national discussion mm -hmm. about the Arctic. And some of my colleagues I've met for many years along the way, and some newer from my, you know, we've discussed before, Clint Davis, uh, but also Madeline Redfin, who I've known for, you know, years and years, helped uh, a lot in those initial yeah. uh, days of putting together a think tank. Well, isn't that an amazing story? And, and sadly, quintessentially Canadian too. We have an American who really developed her policy expertise on Arctic issues in Europe, in Nordic, Finland, and Norway coming to another important Arctic country, Canada, and realizing we don't have policy expertise. We don't have thought leadership in an area that we should, particularly given uh, the, the, the Russian influence in the Arctic led to NORAD and led to basically our modern infrastructure of defense and security. So the Arctic 360, which you founded, grew out of the Bill Graham Center, Trinity College, the Monk School. Did you help pitch this to me? And did they realize, because Monk does a lot of great policy development for Canada on foreign policy and, and, and uh, emerging issues. Did they realize too, yes, this is something Canada and in that case, U of T should have some thought leadership in? Absolutely. And of course, we have thought leadership in this country. We have some amazing um, academics that are also very good pundits and speak very well about the Arctic, but we're scattered all over the place. And so this was an opportunity to kind of consolidate, um, trying to consolidate that, that knowledge and be able to deliver it to the, you know, to the Canadian public. And um, so one of the biggest champions actually was um, John English, who was a former director and a former uh, MP. Um, of the Bill Graham Center, who wrote a book on the Arctic Council and um, realized, and we had early on a, a pretty great conference with the Wilson Centers at that time, newly established uh, Polar Institute um, here that was very well received amongst Monk and others, um, um, that if we wanted to be able to cooperate more with other Arctic institutions um, and think tanks, that we needed to have an actual entity itself that we can... Mm -hmm use that platform. And what I find interesting, Jessica, is you have the thought leadership, your president CEO, but you have an executive director located uh, in the North. Uh, talk about that for a moment. Yeah. So Madeline Redfern, um, she's a former mayor from Iqaluit, and she's still in Iqaluit. And so we have a Northern branch there. And so part of it was we were, you know, the idea of having a southern arctic think tank you know okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> one of the usual kind of ideas disconnected from the north um so the northern branch is the way to help connect um um you know think tank between toronto and and the north but the southern part is actually really important because you know when we have a conversation here in canada every conversation begins and ends with the fact that we have no infrastructure, it's policy, social, you know, economic, defense, we're lacking infrastructure. And if we are going to be able to develop the infrastructure that we need, we need Bay Street. 
um, to be able to understand and know and become engaged um, with the Arctic because we need their investment. And so it seemed to kind of be a great connection point between being here on the, you know, the doorstep of Bay Street and then also kind of boots on the ground in the north because everything we need you know, we do, and, and, and our priorities need to be uh, Indigenous-led, Northern-informed, that type of um, thing. Ab absolutely. Partnerships. Uh, Two-way street. Mm -hmm. Partnerships. And I think there's a real window for the work your organization is doing. We have our Governor General, Mary Simon, one of the thought leaders behind the creation of the Arctic Council, and the fact that Inuit were connecting better uh, amongst various countries than the countries themselves were. But let me dive into the first topic because I do, I, I'm really recommending people to, to follow the work your organization is doing. Um, our report that we issued a few years ago, Nation Building at Home, Vigilance Beyond, Preparing for the Coming Decades in the Arctic, was a real all-party attempt to really make uh, the Arctic an issue that is a priority in Ottawa that is nonpartisan because some of the projects and investments will, will transcend uh, government terms and political parties. And it was an all party uh, document. Michael Levitt was the chair. I was the vice chair. I really appreciated the liberal conservative cooperation. Mm -hmm. One of our first concerns was Russian military buildup in the Arctic. There's been a furious pace in the last 10 years creating new Arctic bases, uh, refurbishing and expanding existing ones. The Arctica uh, icebreaker, a nuclear-powered icebreaker that, can, uh, that is unbound by levels of ice thickness pretty much. Um, the, the Russians have been investing as we've been doing less and less. Simple question. Sovereignty needs to be asserted. With what we see Russia doing in Ukraine now, are there risks to our sovereignty in the Arctic? I would say, you know, yes and no. The yes answer, though, would be not just of an immediate invasion, of course. I think that the risk to our sovereignty is... Um, in this, in it comes in the form of um, a lack of defense, but also a lack of economic development, and I'd even say a lack of, um, you know, real strong uh, di diplomatic ties um, and diplomatic um, relationships that sit outside of the Arctic Council, which is the primary base upon which you know um, uh, Arctic cooperation existed, exists. We'll see going into the into the future, and so. A lot of focus right now, of course, is on Ukraine and whether or not we're ready um, and uh, we can defend our sovereignty. But I think that this is a very long-standing issue, like you were saying. Um, you know, historically, we don't have a very good track record for trying to defend our sovereignty. We've had, in fact, a horrible track record by trying to use people um, in, in trying to assert our sovereignty. And... Um, so this, so like you're saying, over the last decade, um, Russia has been doing a lot, but they've also been doing a lot to, um, like other Arctic countries, focus their attention on the opportunities that their Arctic has. And so they have been doing a lot of, you know, building up the, uh, the military piece, but it has been also a lot of civil military because they have been putting a lot of effort and energy into uh, extract, you know, building up their resources, creating a, a seaway. 
and um, and and exporting those resources. And so uh, the North has been a massive revenue driver for for them. And um, we here have been muddling along. We've kept basically our North in a perpetual state of poverty, um, of all sorts of poverty, you know, but human and infrastructure. Um, and um, can also say economic uh, as well. And so here, while we've been static um, and we've continued just to see the Arctic as a faraway place, we haven't paid much attention to it, it's too far, the world has actually come for the Arctic. And so we've been seeing a really shifting uh, geopolitical, re geopolitical reality going on in the Arctic well before right now with Ukraine, like you're saying with the last decade with Russia. And I would say a big piece of this also, of course, is, um, is, is China. And so um, after Crimea, when there was a lot of sanctions placed um, on you know, uh, investment in the Russian Arctic, uh, China was thick quick to fill that void. And mm -hmm. so we've had now a real long-standing growing uh, uh, economic relationship between China and Russia uh, in its Arctic. And so what that means then for um, going forward is very, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see, but basically we have, you know, as um, as we've been able to keep a you know, pretty good sense of cooperation up until now. What we're seeing is as the West now further, you know, uh, removes itself from, mm -hmm. from, from cooperation with Russia for all the right reasons, but we're going to see then NATO come in um, and probably exacerbate tensions, but this is a necessary thing, of course, because we have Sweden and Finland who'd like to become part of NATO. But what's gonna happen then with Russia, I think is we're gonna have, you know, we have India, we have China, who will, um, I think, play larger roles in, in the Arctic. And so where does that leave us? I think it leaves us quite flat-footed. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised China because it was something our Foreign Affairs Committee also looked at. China kind of declared itself a near-Arctic state, which, you know, um, you know, we could say we were a, a near uh, equatorial state. You know, what does that mean, right? right. Um, you've seen... Uh, at the same time, Russia bulking up its existing presence in in the Arctic, China showing ambitions in the Arctic and and partnering with with Russia. How has that been received amongst the the sort of policy circles who study northern and Arctic issues? Where does China's ambition come from? Is it just another? Uh, they want to be an observer at the Arctic Council and and play roles in all foreign affairs. Uh, organizations or is it resource-based and future seaway based where do you think their ambition comes from well china takes a long view of everything right so china sees the long view of what is to become with the arctic and so they see a real big geopolitical shift taking place so they are there because they know that exactly the arctic has the resources it absolutely needs it's got everything from hydrocarbons to you know critical minerals um, and they do, they see, they take very seriously the opening um, of the Arctic Ocean. And for that reason, um, you know, partly they're already investing a lot in the, of the, you know, in the infrastructure in Russia to help open up that seaway. Um, I understand they have a 265 page guidebook of how to navigate the Northwest Passage. I'm not sure if we have anything <laughs> of similar stature. <laughs> 
And, um, and uh, yeah, and so their long game is that this is a region of opportunity for them and they need to, um, you know, they need to start building that, you know, their, their kind of stake here now, which we've seen. And we've seen that with, you know, some of the mines that they've um, um, bought, but also attempted to buy here in the Canadian North mm-hmm. and around, around the other Arctic countries. And you spoke about the Northwest Passage. They had a research vessel transit it. Now they informed us. And um, the Northwest Passage itself has been a contentious point. You know, the Mulroney government had negotiated almost a detente with the Reagan government back when we got along with the Americans. <laughs> I'm mad at that. Um, we haven't under Mr. Trudeau, but that's my editorial comment. We, there was an expression that the Americans would recognize our claims of sovereignty and notify Canada of any intention to transit. Um, That changed uh, during the Trump administration. And the Secretary of State actually uh, stepped back from that, saying, you know, this is an international waterway, whereas Canada has said this is uh, territorial waters, internal waters, because you're basically navigating between islands and ice flows, and and it very much is in Canadian sovereign territory. What does it say about our ability to assert our sovereignty when our closest ally is stepping back from, you know, acknowledging the Northwest Passage as Canadian? Absolutely. And so I think one of the problems is that it's only Canada who thinks that Northwest Passage is Canada's. And um, there was... um, Predating Trump, there was uh, a long, uh, long-standing attempt, um, efforts made uh, within uh, the United States actually to create maybe possibly some sort of Arctic Seaway that would be predicated off the uh, Saint Lawrence Seaway idea, where Canada and the United States have has long-standing cooperation to mm-hmm. manage that seaway very successfully. And so the idea is, you know, can we create something of uh, similar stature for the Arctic Seaway and particularly maybe to help also engender some, you know, create some revenue um, to help build some of the infrastructure that's required? Could it help, you know, with environmental concerns and, and so forth and, and so on? And um, while the Americans were very, um, you know, they, they were very uh, outspoken about this idea and, and, and were really shopping it around. Uh, there was not much conversation happening amongst within Canada itself or um, amongst, you know, with other Arctic nations or even with the United States about this idea. And what was interesting about that is even back at the time, it's like the in the documents there and um, it discusses how, you know, they'd like to do, be able to do this cooperation um, set up something with 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 Canada, but of course they're open to also talking with other uh, Arctic states, which means that if Canada's not going to you know be interested or even in, you know sit at the table, then they'll start talking with the other Arctic states about how we can have some sort of seaway um, there, which of course then would undermine any sort of um, you know uh, claim for uh, you know Canada have sovereignty over over the Northwest Passage, and so. Um, I think, I think we are in this, uh, Canada's in this situation largely because there's always been this, this assumption, uh, the assumption that, you know, the United States is always going to be a good ally and they'll, you know, and they'll, they'll do a lot, they'll do most of it 
and they'll ask us for like five screws and we'll bring that to the table and then and these type of things and um and so we've never been um um you know we we've never been the ones to try to assert how this region could be built out how we can you know assert our sovereignty what kind of um you know structure could be created in order for there to be safe passages through the region by which you know Canada can 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 maintain control over. I think with the Northern Sea Route, it's interesting. You know, there was no 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 not a big debate. You know, the Russians just started building it. <laughs> they mm -hmm. built infrastructure. They built the seaway. Started charging for icebreaker services, and voila. You know, and um and and we just we just keep discussing how it's ours, and but we don't make any concrete steps towards. Uh, like like, like everything, we kind of uh, wait until it becomes a, a crisis point, which some of us have, have said is there. You talked about building up and, you know, if we are going to to develop um, not just the ability to have transit through through the Arctic Ocean, but the, the infrastructure ports, all these sorts of things, that development not only needs government attention long-term, needs Bay Street and, and the private sector, as you alluded to earlier, you need a commitment that is steadfast because infrastructure projects are more complex, more expensive, and longer term uh, in the Arctic. And we're talking not just ports, but aerodromes. We're talking um, you know, general uh, security as well. Um, what do we need to see to really make sure that the massive infrastructure deficit in the north is addressed because you know just the other day I was seeing a program talking about Iqaluit's completion of its port. You know, so you know the Russians and and the Nordic countries have sophisticated and long-standing port infrastructure, modern ports in in uh, in their countries, and we seem to be generations behind. Yeah. So absolutely, and so what we're talking about then is a lack of all sorts of infrastructure, right? So it's defense. Uh, infrastructure, well, infrastructure for defense, infrastructure for economic growth, social infrastructure, and there is, you know, only so much money that a federal government could deploy, and we need, you know, pots of gold. We need trillions to really build out the infrastructure that's required, and so of course that's going to take. Um, it's going to require the involvement of uh, private capital and private institutions, and so. In order to go anywhere near this type of, you know, realizing this, obviously we need we need an Arctic strategy. I mean, well, we need an infrastructure strategy. Let's say so. We need a long-term infrastructure strategy, and of course, any kind of strategy requires a vision, because what you know, a strategy is the stepping, you know, it's the stepping stones towards some sort of larger point, right? And this larger vision, and. I think this, though, you have to take a few steps back. And I think first what's missing is we don't have an Arctic strategy in this country. So we have, you know, a northern policy framework, which is kind of a domestic policy framework for talking about, you know, some of the things we want to do at home. And this is where the infrastructure strategy comes in. But that has to be informed by an Arctic strategy. And Every Arctic state has an Arctic strategy. A ton of non-Arctic states have Arctic strategies. And your Arctic strategy is kind of a, it's a white paper to the world. You're, you're telling the world who you are as an Arctic state, let's say, if you're an Arctic state, 
you know, what you bring, what your leadership is in the world as an Arctic state, you know, where you're going as an Arctic nation, um, who you collaborate with, who your partners are, um, how you're going to address global threats. And, you know, and a lot of non-Arctic states also have Arctic strategies about being a near Arctic state or even not, you know, India has an Arctic policy now, France just came out with one. And so we're kind of lacking that. And so we're lacking then this big vision, this like, you know, where, what is our vision as, as an Arctic state, where we want to be? And once we kind of try to figure that out, you know, then, you know, then you're, you get the stepping stones, you get the, you know, the strategy is, the, you know, the, these are our five priorities to get us to where we want to go. And then in within that becomes this domestic conversation about, well, in order to realize that a big factor of that is we're going to have to build a lot of infrastructure. And to do that, we need a real long-term Arctic strategy, of course, or infrastructure strategy. And that infrastructure strategy, of course, is built upon or built off of this longer vision. So if we're going to build multi-purpose strategic infrastructure, we need to understand to what end. So what kind of economies are we going to have in the north? Um, what kind of um, defense capabilities do we need? What kind of social infrastructure do we need to realize? And, and so those together, of course, are predicated on what we want to be as an Arctic nation. Um, and only from there, once you have this, can you then, I think, start to then bring in um, um, Bay Street and others to have private capital and so you can get public-private partnerships and these type of things. Because I don't think um, um, there's a lot of risk involved. And so it's going to take a lot of really tight cooperation, I think, between, you know, federal money and yeah. private capital. Yeah. That was one of the big uh, one of the big factors we recognized in our our Arctic study, which was the most comprehensive in in fifty years of a federal committee, was just the long term commitment that's needed. I I went yeah. and specifically ran along the road to Tuktoyaktuk, an investment made by the Harper government, uh, first road to the Arctic Circle. Um, of course, all these are complete when when the government's long gone, the uh, Canadian High Arctic Research Station, CHARS, uh, com completed just before we got there. The port in Nana Civic, the, the naval refueling site, still not completed uh, from announcements going back to, to you know, 2009, 2010. We're here a decade later. Um, some countries get that vision and the strategy better and you're relying on your your nordic experience what are countries like like norway like finland and and others doing that we could learn from in terms of building out that that vision and a plan to fulfill it um yes absolutely and you know this is i began seeing this when i lived there and it's just been a continuation of that and i would say since i you know wasn't uh living in the nordic countries um they've only you know expedited uh, realizing how important the north is for their their own um, um, growth as a state as a state this is also I just will quickly say it was pretty evident and on display we had our annual conference um, just about a month ago um, 
here and we were very fortunate to have, so we have an annual Arctic infrastructure investment uh, conference. And um, because of everything we're gonna talk about right now, I thought it would be very important to bring our Arctic neighbors um, to that conference to start talking and understanding what are our Arctic neighbors doing uh, in, in that vein. And I think it was on display as to where they are and where we are and the, you know, kind of really, honestly, the laggards a, a bit that we are. So just to give two examples, um, you know, Norway uh, just put out its, its latest uh, Arctic strategy, um, you know, and for them, they, they call it the high north. And basically, Norway, you know, considers the north as its most strategic area. Um, it's, you know, they, they, they take a long term view. Um, and, you know, just from a, a report from someone I actually know from uh, that's at the Nord University who wrote a little uh, uh, summary on their latest report says, you know, basically that the high north country is strategically the most important region for them, even though and despite that only 10% of its 5 million um, population lives there. And so it has small population, but at the same time, they see this as the future of their north. And Sweden is very similar to that. And so when you look through um, a lot of what the Norwegian, um, the Norwegian strategy is focused on is very different than our uh, Northern policy framework, which is very domestic looking. Their strategy is very external looking. It's, it's speaking to the world. And so their focus is on peace and stability, uh, international cooperation, um, closer cooperation between business and knowledge. Um, and then also really creating um, good welfare schemes to make sure that they wanna drive more people up to their North to live there. But when you really get into some of the stuff that they talk about, it's, you know, this is how their vision is for the North. And so they say, you know, in, in the years ahead, we're, our focus is on this, you know, a wide range of industries, ocean-based industries, the maritime sector, petroleum, green power, intensive manufacturing, mineral extraction, agricultural tourism, space infrastructure, and the service sector. Um, and so they, they have a very, um, you know, 21st century, second half of 21st century vision for, for, for their North. And they already have um, the kind of infrastructure um, that, you know, supersedes some of the stuff we have here in downtown Toronto. So that's, that's just a given. Um, Sweden at the same time, you know, their, their, their Arctic strategy, their priorities are international collaboration, security and stability. Um, and they have a big piece on Swedish business interests um in in the arctic and so if you you know if you look it's like sweden is a leading innovation country um uh, and they talk about this real close collaboration between academia business and 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 the public sector and i think that's something that they're clearly missing here in in canada um they talk about um the need for innovation in critical minerals and uh, metals, increasing electrification, digitalization, societies, industries, transport systems. But all of this is what, the, you know, they have the minerals in the Arctic, basically to, to, to fund the future of, of, of society in the world, right? Yeah. You know, everything's digitized and um, based on renewable energy economies. And so, I think, I think, you know, we see a very, and they're realizing these, these are not pipe dreams. These are things that are being realized. They are building data centers. Um, we learned from the Swedish trade minister um, that, 
you know, their minds, their, their minds that they're building in the north of Sweden, that how they're all digitized and use AI and, you know, and all these, you know, kind of mechanisms to extract these, you know, materials from different places in a, in a much more sensitive way with zero footprint and all these type of things. And their argument is basically like in the Arctic, we can create these fantastic technologies and innovations, then have real opportunity to be scaled and, you know, and, 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 and be exported well beyond the Arctic. And so it's kind of creating, you know, the future for, for uh, different types of technologies and innovations. Um, because if you can do it there, you can do it in, in many mm -hmm. places. And I can go on for years with different examples of how they are uh, leading. And so, and so they see the resource development, responsible resource development of their high north, their, their Arctic regions, as critical to their to their vision and to their strategy, whereas here, as you know, that's the big stumbling block is, uh, and particularly with this government, when Mr. Trudeau was down with President Obama and signed the mm -hmm. the Arctic uh, Resource Development Ban or uh, over water and land, they didn't even consult anyone. They mm -hmm. just they just did it, uh, whereas responsible development not only gives us infrastructure and security in the Arctic, it gives northerners a chance to be champions of their own economic destiny. And that's something it seems like our Nordic friends seem to get right away. Absolutely. And I think we've, we've, we've gone so far beyond this era of, you know, people coming from outside to explore, you know, to exploit indigenous lands and this type of thing. I mean, if there's one thing that's been I think that this government has done really well. I mean, it's it's a it's a non-starter. We know now everything is done in collaboration with Northerners, and so um, in fact, Canada and you know going to back to you know going to the budget, we Canada takes critical minerals very seriously. And we have this whole mines to mobility you know kind of strategy, and there's a lot of money put into the budget for critical minerals. However, whether or not that's focused on the north, I I, I don't I, I don't we'll have to see. But and so what's interesting is, in fact, the first and the only critical minerals mine we actually have here in Canada is in the north, it's in our Arctic, and it's on indigenous land. And so it's in the Northwest Territories. And so this is, you know, where we have been, um, you know, indigenous equity in Canada's first critical mineral mine. And I think that this is something to be I don't know why we're not, you know, hanging flags up about this everywhere and promoting this to the world, because to me, this is just exactly the kind of development that we should be focused on and going back to building infrastructure, the related yeah. infrastructure around that. And if it's done strategically, you make it social, economic, you know, it could be, uh, and there's always defense implications to this, because if you're going to yeah. export anything, it's going to require a port. Yeah, no, well, you're talking... <laughs> You know, you're talking my language, you know, I've been using the term for many years. I think I coined it, but I'm not 100% sure, but I call it ESGI, uh, Environmental Social Governance and Indigenous Partnership or Participation. Um, we should be owning that because we, we do it so well when we do it. And the focus on critical minerals, many people have been talking about that for the last five years, because we don't want China being able to control access to most of these rare earths and, mm -hmm. and other critical minerals, uh, particularly when Canada, an ESGI global leader, could be a safe and reliable source, particularly to our allies. And when it has an added benefit of 
economic reconciliation and infrastructure buildup in the Arctic, man, there's so many policy goals being uh, achieved. If if we're just a little bit more pro-development, uh, I laugh because I'm I'm hopefully going to the prospect prospectors and developers conference in Toronto and they have an ESGI session. So I think industry is there. Uh, a lot of thought leaders are there. Government is a bit slow. And I think we really need to accelerate that because as you said, the long-term financial commitment of both government and the private sector for infrastructure only comes as part of a committed long-term strategy. And, I, you know, absolutely. And a perfect example, in fact, is, is Greenland. And so Greenland has a lot of critical minerals as well. And that is why Greenland is becoming, um, you know, this kind of place for a lot of geopolitical uh, posturing and positioning. Um, but so if you go to PDAC, Greenland has a Greenland Day. So they have a whole mm-hmm. day dedicated to kind of showcasing um, all of their mining potential and what they have going on. Um, they also, you know, speak to the world as um, one of the places, you know, that have, you know, really high labor, you know, uh, you know uh, regulation, environmental regulations, because they are, you know, literally, you know, an Arctic nation that's mostly ice cap. Um, and so... That, that kind of way of, you know, exporting their identity as this place for investment, um, and it's in their Arctic. And so there's huge potential here in Canada. There really is. And, and that even speaks to the opportunity and potentials that could from, from growing bilateral and strengthening bilateral relations with Greenland, which many countries now strategically are and are putting uh, consulates and boots on the ground um, um, in in Greenland, and it's something that we, we are not doing here in Canada, um, where we have so much opportunity to be kind of you know promoting this region as a whole region for for mm-hmm. um, for global critical minerals. Well, and on that, the the region and approaching it as a region, particularly for cooperation, which is the history here, the Arctic Council provides provides a bit of a format for that. Um, Inuit organizations have been connecting uh, both before and in the in the creation of the Arctic Council. Mary Simon, as I alluded to earlier, our, our governor general, uh, played a leading role in, in the establishment from a Canadian perspective. Is there a chance for Canadian leadership within this regionalized uh, long-term plan for, for the Arctic with climate change, with the polar sea routes opening up, um, are we doing enough within the Arctic Council? Well, I would say, okay, going back to your first question about leadership, we have every opportunity to be, you know, a leader, like the kind of Arctic leader, we just by territory alone, <laughs> in terms of being an Arctic nation. And Canada shown leadership of course, in the past, right? We have been a leader. And like you said, I mean, Mary Simon was one of the key people to really, um, you know, go and and rally the troops and make sure that the Arctic Council was actually established and came into fruition. And so I would say we, when we, when we, when we've given ourselves the opportunity, Canada has proven its ability to be a leader in, in this space. I would say the problem, the issue is, though, that we've put all of our eggs in that basket. And so while there has been a ton of great stuff that's gone on, and I hope will continue in going into the future, and we'll see what that's going to look like in terms of the Arctic Council, um, there's a lot of other 
diplomatic and bilateral relations going on amongst Arctic countries. And, um, you know, and even you talked about the Inuits, you know, the Inuit only don't just cooperate in the Arctic Council, right? They cooperate amongst themselves and many other, you know, mechanisms and ways. And there's a lot of, and, um, you know, longstanding collaboration between the Inuit and Greenland and, and Northern Canada. Um, and so, while I think that we are very invested and focused on the Arctic Council, I think we are not doing enough, though, outside of the Arctic Council in building up our, um, our, our, our diplomacy and our diplomatic relations with our Arctic states. And, um, and, and, and I think that's unfortunate. And I think this goes back to when I was talking about Greenland. And so we had, um, so Greenland has they're, 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 they're strategically important. I think, I think that's not recognized enough. Um, and because they do have the critical minerals, they have, they're strategically located in terms of changing sea routes. Um, and, you know, there's kind of, they're that staging ground between the North American Arctic and, and, and the European Arctic. And um, they're looking to become independent completely from, from, from Denmark in a peaceful and supportive manner. Uh, with, with Denmark. Um, and so we have a lot of, you know, there's China that's, you know, interested in, in, in and has been quite interested, uh, Russia in, in, in Greenland, and then you get the United States also having their own relationships then with Greenland because they're trying to, you know, offset and oust Chinese investment in, in the region and this type of thing. And so you have um, the United States has a, you know they have a, like a diplomatic consulate on the on the ground in Greenland with five people working there full time. The European Union is going to be opening up a consulate there. The UK as well. Um, Iceland's already there, and um, you know and we just I've been arguing this for a long time that we need to have some sort of presence on the ground there. And I just you know it's like hitting my head against a brick wall. Um, and so, but it's these kind of, it's building these kind of relationships, uh, I would say, outside the Arctic Council that are really mm -hmm. important. And so you have the United States talking to Greenland, but like over the north, you know, over Canada's north, and they're talking to each other and creating like, you know, these strategic kind of investments together. And, you know, uh, United States is investing in um, some of the, the, the mining research and mines that are being built in, in Greenland for their critical minerals. And so... There's, there's an interesting interplay here, and I, and I think we're 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 not we're not strategic, and we're not seeing the bigger picture and the long the long vision here at, at what's at play. Yeah. And, and having friends, uh, having you know uh, diplomatic relations, these are it's like it's like having friends or relationships, and they take constant work, and you 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 need to be present. Um, yeah, all the time. And so at our last conference, I'll just come back to say this. So we had so Greenland's representation is the re representation to North America. And so uh, Inutek almost and I've known for like 20 years, he was a former one. Now we have Kenneth Ho, who's fantastic. And he's now there, but their representation sits in Washington, D.C. And so their whole time is consumed by U.S. politics, basically, right? And their relationship to the United States. And it's very difficult. And you kind of have to plan in advance a lot to try to get them, um, you know, the Greenlandic representation here in Canada to, to, to attend a conference or what have you. And so there's been a lot of discussions, you know, should you have presence here in Canada? And like, you know, should we have representation in Greenland? And they're like, absolutely, of course, we want better relations with with Canada. And so, um, but it takes two. Yeah, no. And 
we have to do that because as you as you've alluded to there'll be a lot of situations where a lot of capital is needed to develop a resource for a small country a country especially if greenland does go the way of peaceful independence um china loves filling that gap Exactly. to assert their power and their dominance. So look, this has been a great discussion on everything from uh, security to infrastructure to long-term planning, what some other countries are doing. You are the president and CEO of Arctic 360. I'm going to ask you to do a 360 view from 40,000 feet, the Arctic in 2050. You know, we see a dynamic region. We've talked about some of the issues, um, climate change, resource development, um, interest by non-Arctic partners, build up and attention. Where do you see the Arctic in, in 2050? And where do you think Canada needs to go to, to make sure that we're a meaningful leader and benefiting from, from opportunities and addressing challenges that far out? We're talking several decades. Absolutely. Well, I would say and maybe I'm biased because I think the Arctic is full of great opportunity. Um, but I think in, you know, it's it's already moving from being a periphery to a geopolitical, you know, center stage. And so I think it's only going to continue to do so. Um, and I think it's going to be that way on on two fronts. I think um, because it holds so much of the world's needed uh, resources, critical minerals particularly, um, it's going to continue to grow and prosper. And so it's going to be a place that more and more people move to. Um, it's going to be a place that has massive economic opportunity and economic growth. I think there's going to be a lot of people from a lot of different countries that are looking then to move North, I think at the same time, we're going to see a real changing geopolitical situation um, because once I think Finland, Sweden joined NATO, um, I think those and and this this Russia has just proven itself that this is not this is this is going to have very, very long standing long term implications for global geopolitics and Russia's role in the world. And so I think that's going to fundamentally shift how Arctic cooperation goes forward. And I think then you can't any longer. So by 2050, you will no longer to pretend NATO, you know, is, is whether or not NATO should be involved or not. And so what that's going to look like is going to be different. Um, but so that just means it's going to be like another really important region of the world. So filled with economic growth, economic potential, opportunity, people immigrating in, you know, it's going to become a you know, a very global region. Um, and is Canada ready for that? <laughs> no. <laughs> we have every opportunity to be ready for that and to be a leader in the space because we have it all. I mean, we've got the land, the sea, the resources, the people, the, you know, the intellectual capital. Um, we have really every opportunity to make this like, you know, a major part of our the Canadian economy and to be something that, you know, could sit at the forefront of what Canada's doing in the world. But we, we, the North, we the North. <laughs> as I yeah. said, I, I've used that, you know, using the Raptors, great branding to, to remind Canadians that, you know, 
we have to have a long-term plan and strategy. It has to be as, as nonpartisan as possible because it will, it will need many governments, red, uh, blue, uh, well, that's pretty much the only colors we get federally, but you know what I mean? To, to really execute on a strategy, it has to be nonpartisan. Um, that's why I'm proud of the committee report we did. I've referred back to it many times because I don't think some of this great work gets looked at. Not only was it uh, all parties supported, a number of recommendations, our report was prepared in Indigenous languages in the executive summary form for the first time for any parliamentary study. Um, so we really need that long-term commitment to, to not just eventually show leadership, but to really do a, you know, do a service to the people that live there and the opportunities that are in the Arctic. Absolutely. And your, the report was amazing. It was fantastic. It was so, it was really well done. And it spoke to, I mean, I don't know how many people you all interviewed, but, um, you know, in, it's close to in the hundreds. Um, and so you, you spoke with a lot of people and you, it was an excellent, excellent report for absolutely. And of course, I think the end game is that we do need a long-term strategy. And I think it's a long-term strategy that there's no reason why any political party in this country would not support when it, what we need is social, economic, and defense. And so it's it hits every um, every strand of society. And it's what a third of our you know total territory mm-hmm. land land territory more, right? I mean, when a whole huge portion of our country is not developed and underdeveloped, yeah, no, the the opportunity is unlimited. And that's why uh, we're blue skying it today on the Blue Skies podcast is more people need to to hear and see it. Uh, I have been, Happy to see coverage uh, in the news on CBC in print, the Globe, uh, the House on CBC have been doing really good coverage, really for the first time in years on these issues, all driven by the invasion of Ukraine and, and the war, the terrible war in Ukraine, and people realizing that we have a border with Russia in, in the North. And so I think for the first time, a lot of people are paying attention to the region in a way that we should always do. Uh, so I really want to really want to thank you for blue skying some of the big picture issues here with us today, and uh, and hopefully that that sort of thought leadership you've tried to provide with Arctic 360 is something that the country can really rely on for the next generation. We hope so, and we hope to continue so we can continue these conversations long, you know, long after the war in Ukraine, because we can't just be pay attention to the North today and forget about tomorrow. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed meeting you when uh, I was a witness uh, several years ago. It's the first time, I mean, I was still learning a lot about Canadian politics. And so um, I thought that was, uh, uh, it was really nice to have your, your questioning and um, on there. And I, yeah, I've been following your, you know, kind of your politics since then. It's been quite interesting. So well, and you you and you listened to the last podcast with Nathaniel Erskine Smith, because you live in the beaches so or the I've beach. Been, so I the, the love beaches, the, fact- the beaches. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad you 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 uh you had heard that and you told me. No, we try and have this as a really good conversational uh approach to this podcast, bringing in leading thinkers on an area that I think not just people I represent in Durham, 
but I think more Canadians need to think about. So, uh, and I had some friends that went to your, your latest Arctic 360 conference in mm-hmm. Toronto. I think that type of thought leadership we need more of. So thanks for being here on the Blue Skies with us today. We've had Dr. Jessica Shadian, the president and CEO of Arctic 360 at the Monk School Bill Graham Center at the University of Toronto for a really good discussion of Arctic sovereignty and issues important to Canada if we really want to make sure our North is is an important part of our future, which is going to be whether we like it or not. So I really recommend you checking out Arctic 360. Let me know through email, through through uh, social media, if you have any suggestions for a future Blue Skies podcast. But thank you for blue skying this important northern issue with us today. 